grateful that as we look, we're going to be reminded of some things that I think are really significant as we understand where we are in our walk, where we, where we understand where we are in uh, the presence and time in history. The sermon that happened in Harvest Service this morning was um, Living in Perilous Times, How to Live in Perilous Times, and it does help us to be reminded that we are serving a God who is sovereign and who is in control, and I'm hoping that out of today, this will be a sermon that reaffirms that in our lives and gives us the confidence that we need in order to press through life, just being reminded that God is in control. And it is a true fact, it's one of the major themes that we're going to see in our text and all throughout First Samuel, that God is sovereign. It is unequivocal that God is in control of everything that happens. And Depending on where you may be currently in your life and in your walk, this is either something you want to hear or this is something you don't want to hear. Depending on where you are in your life, knowing that God is in control, if there are some particular traumatic things happening in your life, you may not find a lot of confidence in knowing that he is in control. It may be scary to know that God is in control. But if you remember where we, la- we last left off when we were in 1 Samuel, we got to the point where Israel's rebellion finally comes full circle, and they declare that they want a king other than God to rule over them. And so in this text today, we're going to see just who that man is that God gets to lead the people, who God appoints to be the king over Israel. And what I hope that we see today is that even in our own wickedness and even in our own rebellion, that there is nothing that we can do to trump God's control and sovereignty over our lives. Listen, the reason why this is life changing is because we are all either looking back at some decision in our lives. We are all reflecting back and thinking to ourselves, you know, If I had only made that decision this way, or if I had made that decision that way, then I would be in this place in life, or I'd be further along in my life if I had, if I could go back and change some things. Or we are either in the place where there is some major decision looming in our life currently, and we need to know what to do, and because we're afraid to make a decision, We're paralyzed by fear because we think we may make the wrong decision that our future hinges on our ability to do what's right or wrong. And so with all that, I want to offer you this piece of peace. God was in control. God is in control. And God will always be in control. There's nothing we can do to take God off of his throne. And so we're going to look first today at 1 Samuel Chapter 9, we're going to begin at the first verse, and we'll work our way down. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharoth, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son, take one of the young men with you 
and arise, go and look for the donkey. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Cilicia. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalom. But they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin. But again, they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back unless my father stops caring about the donkeys and becomes anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for this word, God. My prayer is that this will bring us relief. This will give us hope. This will give us assurance that where we are in life, where we've been in life, and where we're going in life, is not up to the decisions that we make every day, but is that you have a sovereign plan that you have orchestrated from eternity past, specific to our lives and all of eternity. And God, help us, after reading and hearing the scriptures today, to trust in you and trust your plan. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are introduced here to Saul, who is a man who is from the tribe of Benjamin. And there are some things that we automatically know about Saul from our text right off the bat. We know that Saul comes from money. We know that Saul is good looking. In fact, the Bible says not only is he good looking, but according to the author here, he is actually better looking than any of the other men in Israel. Some of us can relate. But see, he wasn't just wealthy. He wasn't just handsome. Some of us can't relate. But he was also tall. So what does that mean? That means when people saw Saul, he looked the part of a king. There are some people that you look when you see them that you say, you know, this person looks like they're somebody. They look successful. And that's what the author is setting up for us here. This is the type of person that you see and you think, all right, this is somebody special here. And so the author is setting us up to see how Saul ends up being king. But do you see how it all starts? Look at where it starts. It doesn't start with a careful planning committee. It doesn't start because he submits his name to an open acquisition. No. He ends up eventually being king all from a journey off course. And that's actually our first point in the sermon today, our journey off course. One of the most common misnomers that people have with the way that life happens and how God orchestrates things is that they expect all of our lives, when we come to saving faith, to be a straight line. They expect it to be a straight path to eternity. We won't have any problems, no obstacles, no challenges, and that just isn't the case. 
We think we're going to make every right decision because, you know, we're Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit filled. We know we know the Lord and we discern situations, but we still make wrong decisions. We think that God is only going to allow the good things to happen in our lives and that we will coast right into eternity. But that just simply isn't the case. Our walk with Christ in reality is a series of journeys, of course. We feel like we are constantly feeling the bumps and the bruises from having been off-road for so long. Saul's eventual ascension to the monarchy is an unusual one. He starts here because he was actually looking for two of his dad's missing donkeys. So he and his friend, the servant, they're off looking for these donkeys as they've wandered off. And that means that whatever Saul's plans were for that day, it's safe to assume that looking for some wayward donkeys was not a part of his plan. Probably wasn't his agenda for the day. Not only that, though, but after looking for a while, Saul himself actually decides, you know what? We've been looking for quite some time. This is probably not even worth our time. And we've been gone so long that my dad's probably just going to start worrying about us rather than the donkey. So let's just go ahead, turn back, and go home. But when he said that, it was actually the servant that Saul had with him who happened to know that in the city that they were, that there was a prophet in the land where they could probably tell where the donkeys were. Now, how is all of this happening? This is all happening because this journey off course was off course for them, but it wasn't off course for God. See, God had orchestrated and ordained this moment in order for all of these events to lead up to the point that they are now. These donkeys aren't just wandering off their own volition, but they are wandering because God has this collision course planned for Saul and for Israel. Listen, in our own lives, God has these preordained moments where we take a path that is different than the path that we expected. And while it feels off course, while it feels challenging, while it may even feel like it's the enemy's doing, we must be reminded that anywhere we go in life, even as the result of our sin, we only get there because God permitted it. We only get there because God allowed it. And so that's the same here. Now, I want you to remember what the request of Israel was. They requested to be given a king on their own terms, a king of their own and on their own terms. And then God tells them that they would get a king. So you're going to get a king, Israel, because that is what you have asked for. They'd given up on God as their king, but God had not given up on them as his people. He was still God whether they wanted him to be God or not. And so what God does here is he gives them the idea of freedom, but they are still subjected to his will. That should give us the confidence even in our own world. There are people who don't want God to be God, but this is the good news. God is God whether they acknowledge him to be God whether they count him as God, whether they live as if he's God, God doesn't stop being God because people don't want him to be God. And so it tells us here in verse 15, 
Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Notice what God says here to Samuel. This is significant. He says, I will send to you a man and you will anoint him to be prince over my people. First thing that he says here, I am sending to you the man that will be prince over my people. God is making it clear that he is the one who is orchestrating this plan to give them the king that they asked for. But he's going to be responsible for sending them. See, that's the one thing. God is the one, even though their request was to remove God as king, you can't remove God as king. So he says, so I will send you who I want for you. But see, that's the first thing. But I want you to notice something else here, something interesting here, something unique. And I tell you all the time, every word in the Bible is intentional. It is there for our growth, for reproof. Every word is very specific and has a point. Notice what he calls him here. He says that Saul will be the prince. Huh. Prince. No, they aren't looking for a prince. We don't want a prince, God. We want a king. I don't think you understand our request. See, the word here that is used in the Hebrew is naked. And that word literally means prince or ruler or one who is designated to serve Yahweh. Now, there is a word for king in the Hebrew, and it is melech, but that is not the one that the writer uses here. Why not? Why didn't they just call him king? That's what they asked for. Why isn't God sending them a king? Because he is communicating something else that is significant in our lives, something that we need to understand. Is our second point. Whether they wanted it or not, God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. God is appointing for them a leader, but he's a king by proxy. Just like any of us who pastor, we're shepherds, by, by, but by proxy. We're really sheep disguising ourselves as shepherds. There's a true shepherd that we're all intending to follow. Even his rulership as king falls in subjection to the reign and rule of God. This is important because the, thing, because the king, no matter how arrogant he may be, no matter how ruthless, no matter how wicked, no matter how undeserving of the rulership of king, he is not a free will agent. That means that all of the king's decisions are constrained by God. See, when in right standing, the, com the king will communicate God's rules and God's words and God's ways, so then he is submitting any perceived authority that he has to God. But when not righteous, the kings are still in the hands of God. Now, why does this help us? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but we are likewise 
falling under the reign and rulers and a government and people that will at times flow with the current of this world. There are times when there is legislation that will be passed that will infringe on our Christian rights and we can feel the pressure of wickedness thriving in our world. When that happens, it is important to remember that God is still on the throne. What is the promise of Christ from Scripture? It's that Scripture that we think is just a Christmas Scripture, but it's not. Isaiah 9 and 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And this is the important part right here. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there is no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The government is placed on the shoulder of our supreme king. And the beautiful thing about his government is there is no end in sight. All of the kings of the world will at some point bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the promise that we get from scripture. Every kingdom will fall and crumble at the sight of Jesus. When we look in our own world, when we see things like rising gas prices, when we see our economy being ravaged, when we see death happening, we see sickness like we've seen, we must remind ourselves that this is not escaping the sovereignty and the control of God. That God is allowing it to happen, but that he is still on the throne holding the world together by the word of his power. So that means that any president, any government that takes rule, any legislation that passes has done so under the guardrails of God's control. And while the immediacy of the things that the government and legislation does can impact us, can even hurt us, it can even affect us because we don't have the luxury of foresight. And that means that at times we cannot see the full working of the picture that God is painting for us, but we must be reminded the picture is being painted. Should that relieve us? Yes. Should that give us peace? It should. And let me tell you why all of this is important. Because if God can orchestrate the world from eternity past... He can will a plan of salvation together for believers before believers ever believed. If he can knit together every scene and moment and marriage and move and step that would culminate in a virgin conceiving a child and marrying a man to only give birth to our Savior. If God can do all of that, then he can take care of you. It's just that simple. Your stuff ain't too big for God. And God ain't too big for you. Look back at this. 
On a day where two donkeys happened to wander away, Saul is sent to look, and he just so happened to take the one servant with him who knew that there was a prophet that lived where they were, and the prophet, the prophet just so happened to be the one that God had informed that he would be looking for a king. Look, with God, there is no such thing as chance. With God, there is no such thing as luck. Look at this rich truth from Scripture in Ephesians 3 and 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The comfort from that scripture is that our lives are all happening according to a divine plan that God has set forth. That means that our lives individually, but also collectively, fall in submission to his sovereignty. And I'll be the first to tell you, there are some things that have happened in my life. There are some decisions I've made. There are some people I've hurt and offended that God permitted it to happen, and I don't understand all of it. And I can say that initially, it doesn't make sense that God would even allow a king to be over his people in Israel who he knew would defect. But that brings us to our third and final point. We just have to trust God's plan. At the end of the day, we just have to trust that God knows better than I do. He said this, he said, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Listen, God tells Samuel exactly what his purpose was for anointing Saul to be king. He is going to be the one that I use to save my people from the Philistines. Now, that is his immediate purpose in anointing him. What do we learn in Romans 9 about God raising up Pharaoh? The scripture says that he raised up Pharaoh so that God would make his own name great. Why is raising up Pharaoh going to make God's name great? Because his people had strayed away from him and they were in captivity to the Egyptians. And he used the wickedness of Pharaoh to bring his people to repentance so that he could deliver them. We are all going through things in life, and while we go through, it is hard. And it is even probably harder to understand that God has a purpose for it, but he does. And it is to reveal to you 
a greater knowledge and quality of himself. How many things can you look back at in your life and now see how God was actually working things together? I want to share this story with you. It was actually in the commentary that I used to uh, walk through 1 Samuel. And it is a bit of a long story, but it was such a pivotal example of God's sovereignty. And it did not come from a Christian source. It came from a secular source in the 40s. On January 10th, 1948, just over two years after the conclusion of World War II, Marcel Sternberger got on a train in the Brooklyn subway he had never been on before. Now, normally, he actually took a different line, but he had changed his schedule in order to visit a sick friend that morning and was now boarding a noon train to get to work. But when he got on, the train was full. But just as he stepped onto the train, one man jumped up and ran off, realizing he was about to miss his station. Sternberger quickly took the seat and sat down. Next to him was a man reading a Hungarian newspaper. Sternberger had been born in Hungary, and though he would not normally strike up a conversation with strangers in the subway, he actually felt compelled to say something. So he looked over the man's shoulder and said in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man was surprised to be addressed in his native language, and during the half-hour ride to town, they became acquainted. Sternberger's companion voluntarily shared his tragic story. His name was Paskin, and he had been a law student when the war started. Now, he was eventually put into a labor battalion and then sent to Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians, and they put him to burying the German dead. Now, after the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot, and he returned to his home in Debrecen, Hungary, and discovered his entire family was gone. Strangers were living in the apartment once occupied by his father, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. When he reached the apartment he and his wife shared, it was also occupied by strangers. Finally, he located old friends in Debrecen who had survived the war, they sadly informed him that his entire family was dead. The Nazis had taken them and his wife to Auschwitz, where they were presumably all killed in the gas chambers. Stunned by the news, the man fled Hungary, which had been a funeral land for him. He then headed toward Paris and immigrated to the United States in October of 1947. As Sternberger listened to the story, it seemed somehow familiar to him. Suddenly, he remembered why. He himself had actually recently met a young woman at the home of friends who had also been from Debrecen. She had been taken to Auschwitz, but was transferred to work in a German munitions factory. All her relatives had actually been killed in gas chambers. After she had been liberated by the Americans, she was brought to New York in the first boatload displaced persons in 1946. Sternberger had been so moved by her story that he had actually written down her address and phone note number, hoping to invite her to meet his family in order to help her with her terrible loneliness and grief. Sternberger thought that it was impossible that there could be a connection between these two people, but when he reached his station, he stayed on the train with his new friends. He asked as casually as he possibly could, Is your first name Bela? 
And the man went pale. He said, yes. How did you know that? Sternberger then fumbled for his address book and asked, was your wife's name Mariah? Looking as he might faint, Paskin said, yes, yes. Sternberger suggested they get off at the next station without explaining why. He then took Paskin by the hand to a nearby phone booth. While Paskin stood there like a man in a trance, Sternberger dialed the number, and after a long delay, he had Mariah Paskin on the line. Sternberger reminded her of their recent exchange in a chance meeting, and she remembered him. Without explaining why, Sternberger asked Mariah where she had lived in the Brecon before the war, and she told him the address. Sternberger turned to Bela Paskin and said, Is this the address you lived at with your wife? And looking as he might faint again, he said, Yes, yes. They were then reunited, having thought each other were dead. And they lived a life fully together because of the sovereignty of God. Now, I want you to hear this. This is what the writer said. This is a secular source, but this is how the writer concludes this story. Skeptical persons would no doubt attribute these events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. But this was no chance. There was no chance that made Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he had never been on before. Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as he came in? Was it chance that that caused Bela Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance or did God ride that Brooklyn subway that afternoon? It's not chance. When God permitted Israel to have a king, he wasn't just doing that so Israel would be saved from the Philistines. He was setting us on the course to have our everlasting king in Jesus. He was establishing the throne that gave Jesus the right to be the heir, the permanent king who would not be dethroned. See, it wasn't just about saving the Israelites from their enemies, but it was about saving the whole world from their sins. And to think that all of this started because of two off-course donkeys. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you that our lives are not the product of mere chance that we are not just here because of the luck of the draw. God, we know for a fact that if this world was created on the basis of chance, then we would have had to have chance recreate itself over and over again, and that by chance, humans got here. God, we know we are not here by chance. We are here because you created the world in the beginning. And an eternity passed, God, before I can fathom. You had orchestrated a plan of salvation for your people. God, the Bible says that you make known the end from the beginning. God, I don't even know what's happening tomorrow, but I know that you do. 
And so my hope, my faith, my trust, God, it is not in me. It is not in my ability to make the right decision, to choose the right path, to go the right way, to say the right words. My trust is that even when it feels like I'm off course, I'm still following you. And that you have set this path before me. God, if there's anybody here, if there's anybody watching who feels like they have no course charted for their life because they don't know you, I pray this is the day that you reveal to them that we were born, God, with a debt of sin because of our parents, Adam and Eve. And that sin guilt is passed down to every generation after them. But that we each have our own personal sin, God. But that in eternity past, Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world to pay off that sin debt. I pray this is the day that they meet you. God, there is anybody else here who feels like they are groping and grasping after what should be in their life. Things have fallen apart. The journey is bumpier than they expected. The road is rockier than they could have imagined. That things are not happening the way they wanted to happen, God. Give them this peace. You are in control. God, even when it feels like you're not in control, you are in control. God, help us be reminded of that principle. Not just when we look back, not just for today, but even in the days ahead. God, as Pastor Ron said this morning, God, we do not know the manner of our death. We don't know the time of our death, nor should we even concern ourselves with those things because we have an eternal hope in you that no matter when it happens and no matter how it happens, you are in control of our lives and we trust you. God, we believe, but we ask you to help our unbelief so that we may trust you with all that we have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.